You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies and a Merry Christmas. This is hitting Christmas Day. We're actually going to be taking, this is Nathan, I should say, by the way, your humble and obedient host, and we're going to be taking the next two weeks off, the week of New Year's. We will take off, and then the next week, so we can get everything, get all our ducks in a row, and get ready for another fine year of Sound and Sanity. Big snowstorm came through Sanityville, and uh, it's just, uh, it's a white Christmas after all. What's this? <laughs> it's Ben Solzer. <laughs> hey, Nathan. Hey. <laughs> What's this? It's Pastor Jacob Menzel. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. Merry Christmas, guys. It's Christmas Merry morning. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Did you have a fun... You know, probably lots of people, probably the first thing they did this morning when they woke up was like, man, I wonder if Sound of Sanity is actually going to drop an episode on oh, Christmas they, Day. They didn't wait till they wake up. Till they woke up. It's like kids with presents. You know, 12.01 a.m. You're like, mm. oh, you've got to go look. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know? Has Santa Claus been here yet? Oh, he has. Yes. <laughs> That's right. Here we are. A Merry Christmas to our listeners. And today's episode is going to be a little relaxed, if a little I were, loose. If I were... A person who had kids, mm-hmm. I would I would say to them right now, you know what, kids? There are a couple of things that really need to happen before we open the presents. Mm-hmm. One, of course, Mama and Papa need to have their breakfast with their mimosas, and mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the second thing is, we all need to sit down and listen to this episode, this brand new episode of Sound of Sanity together. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, before we open presents. Yeah, the yeah. sound of sanity isn't always appropriate for kids, so maybe they need to go back to bed. But this one will be. Yeah, this one will be. This will be a, a fine episode for kids mm. to listen to. It'll be the best present present that many children receive. Yeah, well, you're yeah. welcome, children. Oh yeah, <laughs> socks and Christmas joy, underwear and us. What we bring for you. <laughs> could have been a lump of coal. It could have been a lump of coal, but this episode is the opposite of a lump of coal because we're talking about one of our favorite Christmas movies, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, true or false, Ben, mm? It's a Wonderful Life. It, Yes. Uh, true. It is. True or false, Jake, It's a Wonderful Life. It is a Wonderful Life. Hmm. I wonder what John Calvin would say about that. I wonder what William Blake would say about that. <laughs> what would Somewhere, William Blake Some were born to endless night. That's what he would say about that. There you go. There you go. Yeah. What would William Shakespeare say about that? He would say, what, all the world's a stage that we strut and fret away an hour or something like that? Yeah, maybe. I think he would come down on team life, though, by the time it was all said and done. Oh, yeah. You know who else comes down in in team life? The team that made It's a Wonderful Life. Which I will now talk about. A wonderful team. A wonderful team that made It's a Wonderful Life. How wonderful were they? That is a good question. How wonderful were the people that made It's a Wonderful Life? Three of them, the three major ones that you probably know. James Stewart, of course. Frank Capra, the director. And a gentleman, we'll start with a gentleman named Philip Van Doren Stern who was a author, I think he did like histories of the Civil War was his big thing, but he wrote a little story in 1943, or it was published in 1943, called The Greatest Gift, which is what It's a Wonderful Life is based on. It was a little 4,000 word stories. Apparently, he had a dream that involved a Christmas carol, and he decided to write a little story about it. So it is, as is obvious, based a little bit on The Christmas Carol. And, what? And I don't know that he actually... I have to stop you. Yes. Just to let you know. Yes. And to let our listeners know. Yes. That the world-destroying robot mm-hmm. of Sanityville mm-hmm. is currently trending on Twitter, and it kind of frightens me. Oh. What is really? Radiohead up to? We're going to have to look at this. Let's see. One second here. I see 12 Days of Cheesemus. 
Oh, that's promoted by Burger King. <laughs> I wonder what their stake in that is. Uh, da, 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 da. You guys are robot. Obscenityville appears to have made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame somehow. Hey, good for Radiohead. In fact, I wonder how he's feeling about this right now. Merry Christmas, Ollie. <laughs> uh, Merry Christmas, Radiohead. You ready uh, to sit down and watch It's a Wonderful Life? Ollie, good news. I have been given the greatest gift of all. Uh, yeah. What's, what's that, Radiohead? Entry into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh. Wow, uh, good job, Radiohead. You sure you're you sure it's your songs that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? What is this about songs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Ollie? Uh, yeah, never mind, Radiohead. Yeah, let's. Uh, why don't we celebrate by watching "It's a Wonderful Life"? <laughs> it is currently trending on Twitter. Radiohead inducted into Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, uh, that's that's really great. I am um, very excited, although I do not know what this rock and roll is. Oh I assume boy. it has something to do with the mineral compound that your Earth is made out of and the action of rolling. Oh, boy. Looks like this is going to be uh, a less relaxing Christmas than I thought, Radiohead. I've got to educate you about a few things. I have also been <laughs> inducted with the zombies... I am frightened of these zombies, Ollie. Should I destroy them with my lasers? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Radiohead. I think you and I need to take a, a musical journey for Christmas Day into uh, the, the blues of the 1940s for you to uh, understand what's going on here. Oh, boy. Uh, Merry Christmas. Yes, sir. I certainly do wonder how Radiohead is feeling about that. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. <laughs> yeah, <it does. laughs> that is our gift to everybody. Hey, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, we were talking about Dorn Stern, Civil War historian, wrote a little story called The Greatest Gift. It's the primary thing that he's remembered for now. He was not able to find a publisher for the story, so he sent out, I believe, 200 printed copies to his friends as Christmas cards. Found its way into the hands of the Hollywood Illuminati, and they made it a wonderful life. So there's a little piece of trivia for you that's exciting and stuff. But the people that you really want to hear about are James Stewart. And Frank Capra. Frank Capra, of course, is the director of such films as You Can't Take It With You, It Happened One Night, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Some nasty critic coined the term Capricorn to talk about Capra because he could be a little corny. He could be a little gee whiz American. I mean, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's all about how one man can affect the democratic process. And mm -hmm. Americans are basically decent, hardworking. And, um, Capra, very liberal kind of a guy, you know, always the villain would be conservative. I dare say a little bit like Stone Huntington and greedy <laughs> conservative who, who might be a little bit like Mr. Potter, who might be a little bit like Mr. <laughs> Mr. Potter, or I don't even remember Claude Rains, I think it is. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington is some kind of venal senator or something like that. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. Mm, I don't remember uh, either. It happened one night. Claudette Colbert, she comes from a wealthy family of socialites. And Clark Gable is a very rough and tumble sort of everyman hobo kind of character. And he sweeps her off her feet and she decides that she'd be better off uh, sending, letting the walls of Jericho tumble down with him than 
spending the rest of her life as a wealthy heiress. But Frank Capra actually had a real point, unlike some of today's social justice warriors, he actually knew what he was talking about to some degree because he came from nothing. He was a real rags to riches story. He was born Francesco Capra in Italy and came over when he was five years old to the States, uh, traveling in the steerage compartment of a steamship for 13 days, remembered it as something really terrible, and then really pulled himself up by his bootstraps, to use another hackneyed phrase. Um, Studied chemical engineering, graduated in 1918, uh, served in World War I, didn't see any combat, but after he he, uh, got out of that and became a U.S. citizen, he landed in a bunch of like flop houses. Wait, what's a flop house? A flop house is not very nice, Ben. I'm going to give you the technical definition from Google here. A cheap hotel or rooming house. Oh, it looks like it's also called a DOS house, Nathan. A DOS house? A DOS house, Nathan. I can't, a, suddenly I can't talk. A DOS a, house. A DOS house? Nathan. Yeah. That's I've right. Never, I've never heard about it. I've never yeah. heard of a DOS house. I. That's what Wikipedia tells me. Oh, there you go. He would travel by rail. He took a bunch of odd jobs. He actually lived the life of, you know, Clark Gable in It Happened One Night. Or, you know, he lived as an underdog kind of guy in poverty, taking odd jobs where he could find them, seeing the country, seeing the underbelly, seeing, you know, seeing how the working man is treated. So as, when he made movies about, as It's a Wonderful Life, has a strong social message about you know, how Mr. Potter shouldn't be corrupting these uh, and taking advantage of these poor townsfolks and they just need to band together. George, it's worthwhile for George to give his life to keeping that little bank in loan and, you know, fending off Potter's evil advances. Capra wasn't just, I mean, these days I think people watch It's a Wonderful Life and then they make a movie in response to it. You know, so much of what we see in our socially conscious filmmakers are people who haven't actually lived or experienced any of that stuff, but are actually basing their movies on other movies or on documentaries or on other things, other entertainments that they've seen instead of actually experiencing the real thing, which Capra did. And he actually basically lied his way into being a director. A uh, movie house was starting in San Francisco, and he just straight up told them, like, I have experience because he wanted, you know, this was just the last of a series of odd jobs. Worked his way up to being, worked as a gag man for various silent comedies. Um, Because he had a degree in chemical engineering, he was prepared when sound, because the the sound process was laborious and expensive and very technical. And so a guy that had a background in engineering was actually well prepared to direct sound movies. He was always comfortable with the technology where a lot of directors, as we've talked about before, and as is wonderfully portrayed in uh, what's the movie with the rain and the singing? Singing in the rain. Singing in the rain. You know, a lot of people lost their jobs. The industry was kind of overturned in 1927 when the jazz singer came out and they had the first sound movie. But that's not Capra. He was ready for it. And so he suddenly found himself in demand. He made these really socially conscious films and he really started to look at himself as someone that needed to bring a message to people. His art, you know, he was well aware of what he was doing and he wanted his, he wanted his his movies to be what they would have called at the time message pictures. So he made these movies and experienced a decent amount of success at the time. The one that everybody would have said was his best was um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But of course, now we primarily remember him for that, but much more so for It's a Wonderful Life, which famously, as I'm sure everyone knows, was not a big hit, but later fell into the public domain just through some weird rights thing that's not even worth getting into, fell into the public domain and was therefore shown on all kinds of television stations because it was free every year and 
became a classic just through um, basically the generation right before us growing up with it on TV. But if it hadn't lapsed into the public domain, then it probably would be largely forgotten today because nobody really cared about it at the time. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life was nominated for all the major awards, pitch, pitcher, director, actor, but didn't win any of them. It won a technical achievement award for developing a new method of creating fake snow. So that's the one Academy Award that it won, some jank tech award. I mean, I'm sure as far as I know, the, the fake snow seems really cool in the movie. I've never even thought about it being fake until this very moment, basically. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that too and was thought, oh, huh. I mean, you see a lot of those old movies where it's obvious that, or even some new movies where it's obvious that like little pieces of paper are falling on people. Like one of the, <laughs> one of the, I think Fellowship of the Ring when they're on that mountain and they're they're trying to get over the mountain pass oh, really? before they go into Moria and it's all snowy. I never like, noticed. You it. look at Gimli's beard and there's like all these little pieces of foam or something. It's just like this is obviously not real snow if you're paying attention. That's and funny. the actors are all pretending to. So to this day, they haven't really completely figured out or maybe just on, on certain budget, budgetary. I don't know what the problem with Lord of the Rings was. But this was before Peter Jackson could just have them spend a million dollars to CGI snow, I guess. That's what he would probably do now. Yeah. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. What you really want to hear about is Jimmy Stewart. Was Jimmy Stewart really as nice as everybody thought he was, Ben? I don't know. It sounded I'm, like I'm afraid that you're about to say no and then it's going to hurt my feelings. Actually, yeah, it kind of seems like he was. I mean, maybe he had some wild younger days, but he seems like when you read about him, a pretty cool guy. I mean, he was a staunch Republican, not that that in and of himself makes him great, but he was a conservative. What? Um, no. We at Sound of Sanity do not have any particular political affiliation. I'm not saying that makes him good. I just think in a largely liberal town, and a largely liberal in industry even then it's interesting that Stewart was in fact a conservative guy to his dying days uh, may have sowed some wild oats did in fact sow some wild oats in his early days but he w- became a film star uh, with things like the Philadelphia story and then when World War II broke out he wanted to serve as a pilot got his pilot's license actually he already had it because he'd been interested in flying before And so he actually flew combat missions anonymously, flew a lot of combat missions in bomber, actually bombed Berlin a couple times. Hmm. But yeah, Stuart married a woman. I forget what her last name is. I know her first name is Gloria, because if you've ever seen that famous Tonight Show thing where he reads the poem about the dog named Bo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, he talks about the old one. Gloria Hatrick McLean. Gloria Go. That's a good name. That's like a Sanityville name. It is you. a Sanityville name. Right there. Yeah. But yeah, they were married all, all their lives and, and seemed to have a pretty good relationship. Had kids. Just basically what you'd want from Jimmy Stewart. I mean, he had his good problem. George Bailey. Yeah, he just... And I think he leaned into it later in life. I think he realized at a certain point. He, he and Capra both lived to see It's a Wonderful Life be reevaluated as a great movie and realized that that was their legacy. And so when you do see him on the, you know, on the Tonight Show and stuff in the 70s, he's very, he's very homespun and very like, Mm -hmm. he realizes that, I think he realized probably, maybe this is just me being cynical, but I don't even think there's a reason to be cynical about it. I think it's probably just true that he realized, you know, when I go on the Tonight Show, I'm not just going as Jimmy Stewart, I'm actually going as George Bailey. Mm -hmm. And when he died, he died the same day as a guy named Robert Mitchum, that's a really great cynical noir actor who I really love. And of course... Poor Mitchum, he would have gotten a lot of publicity, but Jimmy Stewart got it all. And I remember reading the obituary that Roger Ebert wrote, and he just said, you know, when Mitchum died, 
Mitchum died. When Jimmy Stewart died, it was George Bailey that mm-hmm. died. So the nation's not actually mourning Jimmy Stewart. They're mourning George Bailey. Kind of like when Ben Sulster dies, it won't be Ben Sulster, it'll be Chip McGregor. Yeah, and Pastor Stu. Right. <laughs> Good riddance to bad rubbish. Um, actually, probably the closest, one of the closest things will be when Harrison Ford dies. When Harrison Ford dies, it'll, it'll be, be Han Solo, Han and, Solo Indiana and Indiana Jones. Yeah. Um, Jimmy Stewart, I actually don't think was, if you watch Rear Window, if you watch Vertigo, Philadelphia if you Story. watch Philadelphia Story, I actually think, and if you watch It's a Wonderful Life, as a matter of fact, I'm, yeah. I think we'll talk about this, but Jimmy Stewart actually didn't play nice guys. I think he's kind of at his lamest in some of his later roles where he's just cast to play the the what people think of as the Jimmy Stewart part. I really like, I mean, he's fine there, you know, when he's kind of stuttering and being romantic and cornball. That's fine. But he's actually really good at playing acerbic. And in Philadelphia Story, he plays the acerbic secondary romantic lead. And it's fantastic. He's the best part of that movie. Him and his girlfriend, Mm -hmm. whatever her name is, you know, the the other reporter chick are great in that movie. It's a Wonderful Life. For most of the movie, he's, you know, everybody remembers the last three minutes where he's lovable. But he's really pretty acerbic in that. Just mad the whole movie, even when he's romancing. What's her face? Donna Reed, Mary. You know, it's a romance of I'm angry because I deserve this and I deserve more. And, you know, mm-hmm. if you're robe, if you get caught naked in a bush, I'm going to take advantage of it in mm. my cornball way. But there's there's an, there's an edge to everything. And certainly Hitchcock, who was a master of finding these edges in people and using them to tell compelling, you know, Hitchcock stories founded in Vertigo and in Rear, Rear Window. Window. And both of those movies are <clears throat> and probably and also. Probably also in The Man Who Knew Too Much. I mean, he's more just a, a good, caring father, but yes. there's still an edge. Like, the way he goes after the villain mm-hmm. is pretty It's pretty intense. I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. I've actually never seen that one. Oh, man. Yeah. We should watch it sometime. I would love to. The quintessential early Jimmy Stewart movie would be, what's it called? Not Mr. Deeds, but Mr. Um, Smith. Mr. Smith, yeah. Mr. Smith um, Goes to Washington. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit more. That is Jimmy just Stewart, right? Just the good guy. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Jimmy Stewart playing what we would think of as the Jimmy Stewart part. And that's a great movie, and that's a great performance from him. But when I think of Jimmy Stewart, what I really think of is a guy that's kind of world-weary, a little bit acerbic. Um, Wiley Burp. Yeah, Wiley Burp, exactly. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I think of Jimmy Stewart, what I think of is a dog that belches. Green gas. Green gas. And uh, fights cats with... What kind of guns do they have in that movie? Like they have slingshots, cor- slingshots, and the crazy eye. Is the crazy, it the crazy eye. eye. <laughs> crazy, crazy eye. eye. The lazy oh. eye. The lazy, the lazy eye. eye. I've okay. forgotten that movie. It's the lazy eye. Yeah. Well, now um, he was a pretty great character in that movie. Though. Yeah, Wiley Burp. He actually was a great character <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really sad at the end, though. What happened? Well, at the end, he walks off into the sunset, and it's like his last. Oh yeah. Was that his last actual on-screen voice appearance? I think it might have been. I, th- I th- wow. I I want to say that it was. Yeah. Huh. And I think. Yep, you're right. It was his last film role. And they knew it, and they took advantage yeah. to milk some completely unearned emotion out of the end of that movie. Because it was good old Jimmy Stewart walking into the sunset. Yep, giving his uh, star to old Fievel. Yeah, we could also mention that. Stuart was a lifelong Presbyterian, born and raised, and raised his kids that way, too. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, it is interesting, even though one of his daughters is like an evolutionary anthropologist or evolutionary biologist or something, so uh, who knows what that means. 
he named he and Capra would both name it's a wonderful life as their favorite film i think they kind of had to like i said they they knew it was what they were going to what was going to be on their gravestone by the time they both died it's a wonderful life is actually part of a genre that you might not have heard of that some critics i don't know if this ever everybody uses this term but certainly some people do which is film blanc which is the opposite of if you've heard of film noir Mm-hmm. Film noir, of course, is dark and full of shadows and tells stories about the essential, th- about depravity, really. Just every film noir starts with the idea that man is bad and people are going to betray each other. And um, so all these movies in the 1940s about, you know, we think of detectives and cigarette smoking. and But really, the, all those movies, what ties those films together is a certain point of view about how bad everything is and a certain visual aesthetic that goes along with that point of view. Film Blanc same thing, only opposite. Film Blanc are optimistic, sentimental, romantic movies. Here comes Mr. Jordan or, um, oh, what are some other Film Blanc? Um, what Dreams May Come is that silly movie with Robin Williams. Any movie that's kind of a romantic, supernatural fantasy about, you know, like Christmas Carol is the template about how the heaven, heaven, some kind of a divine power intervenes to make life better for humanity. Touched by an angel. The Bishop's Wife. The Bishop's Wife, sure. Um, per- mm-hmm. Bishop's Wife, perfect example. Yeah. Miracle on 34th Street. Miracle even? on 34th Street. Basically, it has to be a Christmas movie. Yeah, Christmas. <laughs> there are a lot of Christmas movies. Um, Sanityville Saga. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> film Blanc. You thought it was film noir, but... Film Blanc, yeah. Film Blanc. As Although it would help last week. If, if it would help be even more film Blanc-ish if divine power had explicitly intervened to you know three ghosts had come and kicked Stu over a bridge or something he like says that that's didn't happen or isn't going to happen whoa <laughs> they already know don't they when this episode drops yeah um, but who says oh that didn't happen or isn't still going to happen yeah we don't know what happened nope um we don't know what Stu's, Stu's still alive he's still well or maybe, maybe not, not. Yeah. maybe he's not <laughs> maybe film blanc took care of him maybe he got film blocked <laughs> the divine intervention of seven arms yep Yep, you never know. You never do. Hey, who's to say? Who's to say? So I guess I shouldn't have said divine. The, divine. the supernatural <laughs> intervention of seven arms. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's... My bad. It's always a... That's an interesting Freudian slip because it's always... It's usually kind of a coin toss in these movies. Like like Christmas Carol being the perfect example of something that I know some Christians object to because it's about ghosts. And at the end, when he repents, he repents to Jacob Marley and not to Jesus and stuff like that. So you can argue about if you want to get too theologically nitpicky or some would say appropriately theologically nitpicky you can say well you know these movies really present a weird view of sanctification and justification and blah 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 i don't know maybe we'll talk about that today maybe we won't i don't know that i really want to try and solve that problem for people if you don't think that you should watch it's a wonderful life then i don't know i think your life will be a little bit poorer for it but yep you don't have to if you don't want to it's a free country Yep. And even if it wasn't a free country, I probably wouldn't be the dictator of it. And if I was the dictator of it, I wouldn't make everyone watch It's a Wonderful Life. So hmm. I don't think we have to cross that bridge today, necessarily. But guys, let's watch It's a Wonderful Life. I've got it all ready to go in the Sanityville studio projector. Let's do it. And while we do that, our listeners can listen to this humorous interstitial segment. Oh, good. They'll be so happy. Yay! Yay! Benjamin Q. Solcer, everything is holly jolly when you're around. I must be the happiest guy on the planet, because I'm always around me! Uh, and let me check my Christmas list here. I wonder if old Benjamin Q. Solcer will be happy with all the gifts I've gotten him. 
I think he will. <laughs> you know, I was just thinking without me, the Q&A movie podcast, it wouldn't even exist. Without me, people wouldn't be reading my wonderful books. Without me, my parents wouldn't have their wonderful son. I mean, there's just so many things. Yes, sirree. What is that uncanny music? Whoa, hey, he just came out of nowhere there. Are you uh, a Q Sulcer fan? Because that would make two of us. Benjamin, I'm not your fan, but come and know me better, man. Hold on, you're not a fan, but you think it's worth my time for me to know you better? Let me show you how the Earth would be much happier without your birth. I sure am enjoying this podcast I'm listening to. The best movie podcast I could find. Sound of sanity at the movies. It's the bee's knees. And I'm glad that Benjamin J. Solcer never plays an obnoxious, terrible version of himself. I was going to try and listen to a movie podcast from First Church of Sanityville, but they don't got one. <laughs> and now I'm happy. But First Church of Sanityville does have a movie podcast. It's my movie podcast, the Q&A movie podcast. Hey, what are you talking about? You think I don't know my own town? Think I don't know what podcasts are available to me? Sound of Sanity makes a terrible movie podcast. There's only one way to settle this. I'm going to beat you with this lead pipe. I think it's only fair. After all, you have expressed an opinion different from my own. Later, later, alligator. Hey, Chip, uh, what you reading there? Well, Lance, I've just finished the greatest masterpiece of Russian literature, War and Peace. But Chip, w- what about Anna Karenina or, or Dostoevsky for that matter? Well, Lance, I'm a War and Peace kind of a man myself. Never did hold with the dark psychological introspection of that Dostoevsky fella. He just goes a little too far down his own navel for my taste. Well, Chip, there are a lot of other candidates for greatest Russian novel of all time. I wouldn't want to jump the gun on deciding what that is. Uh, have you even read Turgenev's Fathers and Sons? Can't say that I have, Lance. I'll be glad to give him a shot, though. But you know what? Russian authors is like possums. Some of them have rabies. Well, uh, Chip, speaking of possums, I sort of usually expect you to be reading Possum Weekly rather than 800-page Russian novels. Also, uh, don't you occasionally read those terrible Christian self-help books on Calvinism and workout plans and such like? The kind that you can find in the lobby of First Church of Sanityville? Well, absolutely, Lance. In fact... Just the other day, I went to the lobby to find a crummy book on Calvinism and a crummy book on a Calvinism workout, but I couldn't, so I read this instead. Now, I'm happy. But there is a wonderful Calvinism self-help book in the lobby, The Power of Positive Calvinism, my book, and then The Total Depravity Workout, which is totally related. My books are in the lobby. No! And the NASA scholarship goes to Jamie Q. Solzer. And a more beautiful, poised, secure, humble, and intelligent young woman our panel of judges couldn't imagine. Oh, sweetheart, you did it. And all that without ever having to become a vain, glorious self-promoter. Thanks, Mom and Dad. I'll be donating the scholarship money to charity, though. After I've completed my internship with NASA and worked for a little while bringing water to Africa... I just want to be a humble wife and mother. Or you can do anything you put your mind to, dear. It's a good thing we didn't have that son like we thought we wanted. Oh, yes, that would have been a tragedy for all concerned. <laughs> no, Mom, Dad, it's it's me, it's your son. What? Who is this young whippersnapper? I think I'll beat him with a lead pipe. 
Here's one of the lead pipes I'll be using to deliver water to Africa. Perfect. Give it here. Ha-ha. Ow, ow, stop. No, please. <laughs> That'll teach you that. I'm your talk that way. I'm the best. Ah, there's one for your ribs, oh, whippersnapper. Ed, Get him, dear. Get him. Oh, ow, no. Oh, my. Oh, huh? Everything's okay? My ribs are, they're not broken anymore? Oh, man, everything's fine. I hope you've learned your lesson well. Humility is hard to sell. What? Uh, yeah, yeah, right. No, I, I learned my lesson. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm so glad that what I experienced has no actual basis in reality. <laughs> that's, that's what makes me happy today. Anyway, uh, later. <laughs> oh, this idiot didn't learn a thing. Another year without my wings. I wish, I wish my work was through, but now I must see Pastor Stew. Hey guys, we're back. Yes. It's a wonderful life. I forgot to ask you guys, had you seen this movie before? I guess it's pretty obvious we'd all seen this movie before. <sighs> Too many times to count, man. And we all yeah. liked it, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Anybody have any special memories of It's a Wonderful Life or any context they feel the need to share? I think it's probably just the same as everybody. Mm. You just grow up watching it every Christmas Mm -hmm. season. Yep. You know, I watched it once with my family growing up and actually didn't watch it again. And I don't remember. I remember it feeling as a kid really dark and I didn't know enough to know any better. You know, I think if someone approaches it knowing it's a Christmas classic, they can kind of almost feel like they're watching a Christmas classic just because that's what they're expecting. But I just, you know, saw it when I was six or something and I just thought of it as a movie that my dad turned on and it didn't feel particularly uplifting to me at the time. I mean, I don't, what stuck with me wasn't the ending. When I came back to it, like in my 20s, the ending was really powerful and it did feel uplifting. But as a kid, it was more... This is just really dark and sad, and Mr. Potter's kind of scary, and Potterville is mean, and there's Bedford some... Bedford Falls, you mean... Oh, you mean actual yeah, fantasy world Potterville? Yeah, Pottersville. And, um, Pottersville? 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 Pottersville. Pottersville, yeah, whatever it is. And there's some weird, like, sex... I don't want to say sexual stuff that's overstating it, but, you know, as a kid, it's like, you're not quite sure, sure what to do with his relationship with Mary and everything that's kind of going on there and the weird like innuendos about Violet and stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't want to o- overstate the case. The fact uh, that yeah. Violet's like, you know, what she's doing in Potterville. I don't know. These were the <laughs> things that stuck out to me as a boy. Maybe I, maybe for in order for those kinds of things to stick out to me, I must have been a little older. Maybe I was 10. I don't know. But yeah, I just, I, I've always thought of it as kind of a dark movie actually. And it was only later in my life that I sort of embraced it as a Christmassy kind of a classic. Mm-hmm. I I remember as a kid thinking of it more as uh, less the George Bailey movie and more the movie of Clarence the Angel mm-hmm. than really just liking Clarence and the idea of a little supernatural divine intervention being depicted on screen for me. Yeah, and I imagine that's probably how it works up. for a lot of kids. Like Clarence is actually a good, you know, he's, he's trying to, and... he's obsequious and trying to please his his boss, his dad, you know, whatever, whoever the 
blinky star guys at Abraham. Um, yeah, Joseph. and he means well, and he should just be trusted because he's his guardian angel. And mm-hmm. why isn't George just trusting him? And But Clarence is also kind of goofy and messing things up. I mean, he's like a droid in Star Wars almost. Yeah. He's, he's like that character that kids can... Yeah, and then you give, you know, it's the story of how Clarence gets his wings. Right. I think that's how I more how I processed it as a kid. Which is a great way yeah. to process it. That be, I and I, I, I'm sure a lot of kids did for whatever reason. Even Clarence, to me as a kid, just felt kind of sad. I think the first half of the movie just had such a visceral impact on me and George's despair that the ending just didn't feel at the time like it did enough. Even with Clarence being kind of fun and goofy and childlike, it just it still felt sad. Um, I remember when I saw that at some point in my life, I came across the famous Saturday Night Live skit where the whole town yeah. goes and, you know, beats the crap out of Mr. Potter. I remembered where I left the money. I put it in a newspaper and gave it to Mr. Potter on accident. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, he's had the money this whole time? Let's get him. And then they're just like, <laughs> Justice for Potter. Lynch mob, basically. And I remember that feeling actually pretty cathartic, as I'm sure it did for a lot of people, because it's just like, it doesn't happen in the movie, and you're waiting for it the whole time. And it's just like, in the end, it still sort of feels like Mr. Potter wins, even though George is okay. And even though in some cosmic sense, the Mr. Potters don't win, the actual Mr. Potter in the movie still wins. And you can say he doesn't, but if you track the logic of the movie, it's like, yeah, George got enough money to be okay, but he's still not completely out of trouble. I don't know. I always processed it. Well, I don't know how I processed it. I think that what I felt was that I trusted George. That was how I processed it as a kid, like watching him go through all his childhood stuff and do what he does. The scene with Mr. Gower. Mm -hmm. Well, he's going to do the right thing at personal cost yeah that was always the most important scene to me i think in the drugstore where he just he just takes it he takes this guy's abuse Mm -hmm. and loves him anyway and like saves him from a murder trial right and Um, then mr gower's gonna show up at the end and throw in yeah some money yeah and so i think that i always just had like an affection like i wish that i you know like like you you watch him suffer Mm -hmm. and you watch him respond the right way to a lot of things, not everything, but to a lot of things. And you just, as a kid, I trusted him. Yeah, for some reason, the parts where he responds poorly was always what stuck in my mind. I don't know, maybe I'm just twisted, but the part where he he's nasty to the school teacher. To the teacher. And oh, then, yeah. And then the husband yeah. uh, is mad at him and wants to beat him up, mm-hmm. and the whole bar rallies around George. And it's just yeah. like, how dare they rally around George? I don't like this community for supporting George in, in this moment. I think mm-hmm. the school teacher's husband is completely justified. It bugged me as a kid. It still kind of bugs me that they don't circle back around mm-hmm. and have George apologize to that guy or that guy just... I trust that George Bailey's a good guy that probably did resolve it, you know, within the logic of the movie. But also, just all those things, George's bitterness, the way that he mistreats his kids. They went for a really relatable George Bailey. Every man, every husband and father has made sacrifices to be a husband and father and to care for his family. And nothing ever works out exactly the way that you want it to. And that makes a man feel frustrated and impotent. And sometimes he kicks the dog. He takes it out on his wife and kids. And then he feels terrible about it. And what they did was they tried to balance that out and give you a balanced portrayal of a sympathetic guy who's making all kinds of sacrifices for Mm -hmm. his friends and for his family, who never really seems to get anything that he wants and it makes it feel not justified, but understandable when he 
when he does those kinds of horrible things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't easy wanna... to enter into and relate to. Yeah, it is. And it's, of course, that's why the movie works, but I'm just stating a fact and I don't know how interesting it is. Maybe it's not interesting. Maybe it's very interesting. But for me, watching the movie as a kid, I, I don't know, without getting too Freudian about it or talking too much about my own experience, I related to not the kicker of the dogs, but to all the kicked dogs in the movies. I felt like the movie was really dark and I oftentimes didn't like George and I was happy for him that everything worked out and I respected him when he stood up to Potter and all that kind of stuff. But I definitely, I think the most, one of the most keen feelings that I walked away with was the injustice of how he treated the people that loved him when he was depressed. And I get it. And I get that I do the same thing. And I get that, you know, that's why the movie's better than a lot of its imitators and things that have spawned because now someone making the movie would actually just make George great. And that misses the entire point, I think. Um, The entire point is that an every man who sucks can still make a difference. Not Mm -hmm. that a great man can make a difference. But having said that, I... George really has to suck pretty bad in order for it to feel as cathartic as I think it does for a lot of people at the end. Well, and he has, and, and for me, and for me. Yeah, um, people forgive him that they rally around him anyway, yeah. even though he sucks. Well, and he has to be so selfish that he can actually get on a bridge and contemplate Think about it. actually doing it. So, yep. you know, in order for the story to even work, George, it would be ridiculous for George to just be a saint through the whole movie and then suddenly things don't go his way and he gets on the bridge. Mm-hmm. He has to actually be a better man. Um but man, I did feel that bitterness as a kid. Anyway, guys, I got the movie timer here. And hey, our first movie fight, we're going to have five movie fights today, is going to lead right into this. I'm going to argue that George Bailey's good. These are assigned randomly. <laughs> and Ben, you're going to argue that George Bailey is bad. Great. Let me just get I my... A, uh... I feel like I have a lot of things I could say, Nathan. Ben, you have 60 seconds to argue. Or Actually, I'm going to go first. I have 60 seconds to argue that George Bailey is a good man. Uh, one, two, three, here I go. He's George Bailey. He stays in town. He fights the evil Mr. Potter. He says, well, I don't need a day to think about it. And he, you know, he's temporarily tempted because every hero has a flaw. But then he, he throws that uh, cigar in Mr. Potter's face and he does what's right because he's George Bailey. And does he kill himself at the end? No, he actually makes the right choice and decides to go back to his family and apologize. And I don't know, he convinces the people not to do the thing that will result in badness, you know, when he says it's Bill's money and George's money and all that. And, you know, he's just always there for everybody. He's always dying to himself. What does a hero do if not die to himself? I mean, that's what the greatest hero of all time did. That's what George Bailey, in his small uh, likeness of that hero, does. And that's why we love him, because George Bailey is self-sacrificial all the way. He's not always happy about it, but when push comes to shove, George Bailey does the right thing. The end. The end. All right, Ben, you ready to argue that George Bailey is a bad man? Yeah, that's what I'm going to argue. When did you go? Well, being self-sacrificial isn't all all it's cracked up to be, unless you're sacrificing yourself for the right goal and with a good heart. And that's what Jesus did for the joy set before him. So did Jesus, like, sacrifice himself and the bitterness of his soul? Obviously not. But George does. Through the whole movie, what you you learn when George is about to make his suicide attempt is that the whole time George has been storing up frustration and bitterness— 
and maybe not with every sacrificial choice he made, but with a lot of them, that's how you get to a bridge, about to throw yourself into the icy waters. And that means that George is not a good man. And what's exposed to the whole movie is his selfishness and his, his failure to deal with um, his, own, his own heart. And it's like he, can, he was able to convince himself sometimes that he was doing sacrificial things for the right reasons, but, but there's still like a, like, like a core of bitterness and selfishness that he never dealt with that has kind of corrupted all that he's done. And that's what you're seeing. You're, you are seeing all the weaknesses and sins of George Bailey's whole life revealed when he's abusive towards his wife and children and, and his, his daughter's teacher and when he contemplates suicide. So he's not a good man. And that's why this is a good and useful movie, because he's like us. You went over time, but I thought you deserved to finish that argument. Um, in fact, I'm going to hit the movie timer with a hammer. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everybody. Yay. We're just going to talk. We'll, we'll still make arguments and we'll still try and keep them within, you know, like we've been, yeah. we've been doing. But we won't time them today. Um, Jake, I guess you get to be the judge. Who wins? You both win. What do you think the movie thinks? To me, that's the million dollar question. And I'm not sure what the answer I is. I think the movie thinks that George is a man who is understandably frustrated and who is also bitter and selfish. And that's why he needs divine intervention to show him all that he has to be thankful and grateful for. But the divine intervention yeah. also shows him, I mean, if I can how, play devil's how advocate, awesome how a, great he is, actually. Yeah. How many people's lives he's impacted, which... He's taken for all of that sort of for granted, though. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of it. And, you know, it, it ends with the line, you know, that Clarence wrote in Tom Sawyer, no man is poor who has friends or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, I, th I think that that's kind and of George like... George Bailey, the rich, to my brother, the richest man, the richest of, man in, town. in all of, in town. Or Yeah, I think that's it. it it's kind of like, um, the problem is that uh, it's not like God... If we weren't born, God wouldn't still bless people right. through other ways. But on the other hand, we do take for granted all that other people are, are for us and have done for us and how much poorer we would be without them in our lives. That's mm -hmm. what the movie is trying to get at, really. Yeah, and there are times in our lives, I'm sure all three of us have had them, where God reminds us of the ways that we've actually grown. And, mm -hmm. you know, because you do just feel the grind of your fight against sin and against your own bitterness. And then at some every once in a while, when you're really down, you'll have that moment where you just remember, oh, this is what I used to be like 10 years ago, three years ago, five years ago, oh, whatever. Yeah. And I'm actually, it's not me, it's God. And that's where I suppose we theologically disagree with the movie. I think a little to your point earlier, I don't know that George had really, those frustrations and bitternesses, mm -hmm. they reared their head every once in a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah with George, but for the most part, he seemed pretty resigned and Mary seemed pretty awesome about it, mm -hmm. right? That's it, true. And it wasn't really until his reward for this a lifelong, a life of, he wasn't, he was just being a good brother when he jumped into the water. He was absolutely caring about his town and his community when he spent his honeymoon money on yeah. keeping people from panicking and mm -hmm. that's right, losing their livelihoods. Yep. He was being a city father in lots of different instances along the way. And it came to the end and his reward for all of that seemed like it was going to be prison. And he was going to take prison for Uncle Billy. Yep. And that's what he was looking at was like, is this what fate has dealt me? Is the final sacrifices I have to go to prison for my uncle? 
And that brought it all up to the surface. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it's quite fair to say that he hadn't been dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I pushed that pretty hard for the mm-hmm. sake of my argument. Yeah, I think I think it is a little more balanced than what I than what I said. Yeah, because um, I still like George. I mean, his his instincts yeah, are to be to like love people, mm-hmm. to serve people. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's because he to values them. before him. Yeah, it's not because he has some crappy moral calculus going on inside, and he's he's just ignoring. <laughs> okay, I feel really bitter, but I feel like I'm obligated. No, no, that's not how George is. George is like he he actually does love people. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think the movie, I would argue, I think, and I'm not sure even what my evidence would be, but it does feel to me like the movie admires George more than I do. Maybe it is in just not bothering yeah. to wrap up the little subplot with the school teacher's husband and things like that, where the movie sides with George. And I'm like, objectively, as if we're all sort of like, for lack of a better word, gods looking down on this universe, I don't side with George there. And yet, the God that's telling the story does. Mm-hmm. Well, only in small ways. I'm just, I'm talking in degrees here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't make it a bad movie. It doesn't make it a bad moral That is fable. the kind of thing that would happen if you were the kind of man that was just beloved in his community and you'd gone off the rails and said nasty things. People would just take up your cause without knowing the facts. Yeah. Yeah, but I think a well, t- the, the best that's what tell- George should have seen in that moment is here he has this world of people that are just ready to, he screwed up, he did wrong. And there's these world of people that are just ready to think the best of him in that moment. Mm-hmm. He should have, yeah, he should have seen that as something, but he couldn't. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I wish that the movie took a step back and said, however George feels about it, however the townsfolk feels about it, what's happening here is bad. Is bad. Um, and you could maybe argue that it does, but I don't really think so. The way it's shot, the way that it's shown, the way the the actor that's, you know... the Mary's th- pretty upset with him about it. Mary is upset with him, that's true. And you do side with Mary over George in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I never I never felt good about it. And I didn't. I never felt like the movie was trying to make me feel okay with George's nastiness towards the teacher and her husband. No, I don't think the movie is trying to make you feel good about it. I don't know. I'm talking about... Like, yeah, the movie also just needed George's lip to bleed, so. Yes, that is true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think maybe we can get a little bit more at this issue by talking about having our next movie fight, which is, this is an interesting topic, in the me, the era of Me Too and all that sort of stuff and uh, what her life matters and all that good stuff. Mary, the character of Mary. Does the movie play fair with Mary, Jake? And I think people through our argument, we'll understand what we're talking about. You were going to argue that, yes, the movie does play fair with the character of Mary, and it looks like I'm going to argue that it does not. Since I wasn't there when we decided the topics, what exactly... Why don't I go first, and I will argue that the movie does not, Okay. and then you can argue against it. Okay. Is it like, if it's not... it, it With George, Mary's this beautiful, wonderful, every man's dream of a wife, mm-hmm. and without George, she's an old maid librarian? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Mary. <laughs> I was just trying to wreck yeah, yeah. my brain. Like, what? How would it not be playing fair? Oh, I see. <laughs> You're an old maid. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to make the argument very quickly. It is bogus. It is misogynist. It is so dumb. It is toxically masculine, I dare say. And I'm, I don't even think I'm using hyperbole. I actually do believe the movie is completely sexist and stupid. 
and lame and terrible and obviously written by selfish men when it portrays the ludicrous notion that a sweetheart of a woman like Mary was only meant for our hero, George Bailey, and if he didn't come along, she would be an old maid. There's no way. Mary had way more agency than that. She was a way more cool lady than that. She would not spend her life with nothing if there was no George Bailey. She would find another good man, and she would make a great wife for that man, because that's just who Mary is. She's awesome. I love her. If you are a person that respects women and likes them and thinks that they're not just props to be used in a story about a great man, and I don't even think I'm overstating this for the purpose of argument. I just think the movie really falls flat, completely flat there in a way that's actually pretty sexist. I mean, as much as we argue for certain conservative opinions on sexuality, on Sound of Sanity, I, will, I do not go there with Frank Capra and his writers. End of argument. Now, Jake, you have the pleasure of arguing that the movie does treat Mary fair. <laughs> um. <laughs> These were well, assigned be, uh, by random toy, to coin toss. This is a really good fight to pick, uh, as we're about to see, because I'm going to come up with a killer argument. Right, of course. For how, obviously... Can I ask you a completely unfair and leading question? Yes. If you had never been born, your wife would just be an old maid, right? Probably. Because she's just she's just a woman that needed you to complete her, right? And That's so, right. And there's, I'm the only person that would have been capable of that. Right. She's just like, she needs a man like Jake Menzel. And if there's no Jake Menzel, then poor she's Amanda's, an old maid. She's just yeah. going to work in a library. <laughs> yeah. And be a scared, frightened woman and very tight. Yep. Because she yeah. needed you. Because she needed me. Yep. All right. End of leading question. Go ahead with your amazing argument against this. Well, just obviously that's the way it works. Okay. Okay. This is the amazing <laughs> argument. Yeah. That's the way, that's the way it, it works in the world. If Women are like half creatures. They really just need men to come along and complete them. A specific man. Okay. Them. Let me give the good version of this argument. <laughs> because it is true that a... Let's take Sanityville, for instance. Mm-hmm. If Erica is Erica Rosebloom, Erica Rosebloom, if she married somebody besides Matt Rosebloom, I think Erica could have turned out very differently if she had married somebody different. She's obviously got some issues that are inherent to her. Yeah, and she has personal responsibility and agency. Mm-hmm. But who we marry does end up affecting us drastically. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that Mary Bailey or whatever her maid, what was her maiden name? Becomes an old maid without George Bailey. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had it, part of the dumb thing they did, and that was a really dumb thing that they did. The other dumb thing they did was Mary had people lining up, but she was fixated on George. And the fact is, if there were no George to fixate on, there would have been somebody else to fixate on. If they wanted to do that, tell that story in a fair way, I think they could have had another suitor who was plausible, and it was him or George. Sam then, Wainwright. Yeah, and then and then, and then we see <laughs> her with that guy. Hee-haw. Yeah, and we see how, well, no, he'd have to be more plausible. Act. He'd have to seem like a, the kind of guy that a, a Mary would marry. And then we see her with that guy, and we see that, you know, he sucks or that he's led her in a way that's made her unhappy. We, She's you, a little more bitter, a little more cynical, or a little anything. Even there, I have to believe that the Mary that I know would you know similar to charlotte well what's awesome um, about mary is that she would do her best to to live in an understanding way and be a good wife to Mm -hmm. a 
difficult man, which is exactly what she does with yeah, George. Yeah, that's why everybody loves Mary, and she's, I mean, she's one of the wish fu- wish fulfillmentiest mm-hmm. wives in all of cinema. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So How do you not just love Mary? You do. Yeah, you do. It's like a missed storytelling opportunity. It would have been more powerful, right, for George to see the alternate life where Mary's happy without you. It's your loss. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah, that would be. Let's just rub his nose in it. Oh, man, yeah. And uh, and she's got somebody who actually takes care of her and doesn't oh, kiss the dog. Better. Now, that yeah. would have been an interesting. Hmm, I feel like we should, we should, we should well, make but, our own version of this. But if, the, if that had happened, then George... <laughs> would have thrown himself off a bridge. Yeah, well, know. that's that know. kind of leads us back to the first question of is George Bailey good and bad? And my question of whether the movie's quite playing fair, I think it is in things like that, like Mary, and just a few little nuances like that in the movie that I just think it's not quite playing fair. It is stacking the deck to make George into more mm-hmm. of a hero than I ultimately believe that he is. Or that, I mean, I, I think the movie likes George better than a good Christian actually or, or respects George more as a good man more than a mm. more than a truly moral person should. But I think the movie works in spite of itself insofar as it makes and any so mistakes. And so does a Christmas Carol. And so does a Christmas Carol, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so do lots of good stories. I'm not. It's not really a criticism. It's just an interesting talking point about the movie. The movie. I wouldn't change a thing about it. Yeah. Um, maybe I would actually change the Mary scene, but you know. Well, what I, I think mean? Ben is right that it is a missed storytelling opportunity. Yeah. There were other ways to go, and Ben's pitch may not have been the right way to go but there were other ways to go to make the story that much more compelling at that point there has to be mm. a way to solve that problem without just she's an old maid because george never as came a along really cheap solution yeah that's a really, <laughs> that's a really cheap solution all right um so point goes to nathan in jake's face but that's i mean honestly every man on that carrier died because harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry as if like, okay, like somebody else wouldn't have stepped up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? That's, that, yeah. Well, that's, that's the, the, whole... The, the whole movie is full of things. It's like that. a fable. You yeah. have to, you can't, I'm holding it to a standard higher than a fable. And the, I fully admit that that's unfair. It also makes for an interesting podcast discussion, but yes, the movie obviously has to be able to work on the level of myth or fable. That's what it's designed to do. And in some sense it is unfair. I think there was a better mythic solution or fable solution for the Mary problem, but who knows what that is. Hmm. Um, all right. Movie fight number three, guys. I guess we are getting into it. I didn't remember that we were going to. Divine realities. Yeah. Are they used well? It looks like Ben is going to argue that <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> and I'm going to argue I'm going to be the curmudgeonly Calvinist guy and say that they're not. But uh, it looks like you're going first. <laughs> All right. Buddy. <laughs> yeah. So just get up on that bridge of argument and <laughs> decide whether Can you want to just... jump off or not. All right, Ben, you're going to argue that divine realities in It's a Wonderful Life are used well. Oh. Go ahead. Sure. Why not? Well, uh, what you learn in It's a Wonderful Life is that God is listening, that he cares, that prayer actually matters and does something and affects spiritual realities, that God knows you and every detail of your life, and that's the basis for his help, <laughs> that there are such things as angels. This is all the good and positive stuff, folks, that I can think of. What do you want me to do here? Um, and that God has supernatural power to do anything to the world he wants, including pulling one life out of it and reorganizing all of history without that life. So God is, like, omnipotent, if he can do that. Um, 
So you learn, you learn a lot of things that at least fit with a Christian perspective of God, <laughs> with the real God. <laughs> I don't know what else I could say about that. <laughs> okay, well. I don't really want to try. That is a noble effort. Here, I'll do the bad one, and then maybe the bad one will trigger some more. Mm. I, bet, I bet we don't land squarely on the bad side, but we'll see. Uh, well, obviously, what this movie actually teaches, for I'm now arguing against it, is that God is just kind of off screen. I don't even know that he's mentioned. I mean, does George pray to him at one point? Does his yes, name of does. God actually come up in the movie? Yeah, he says, dear God, I'm not much of a praying man. Yes, you're right. He's not much of a praying man. That's exactly no. the point. Nobody in the movie is. They're all a bunch of a-religious people in a Hollywood myth, just like they all, just like all Hollywood myths are. And basically, it's a story of, I don't know, the divine is presented as kind of goofy and fallible. We're really talking about a works-based righteousness here, I think. Not, not, not a lot of talk about Jesus, and maybe that's unfair, but I mean, the moral of this movie is that the angels should intervene and help a really bitter man because he was nice and helped some people. Not entirely fair. It's actually because everyone else prayed for him. Yes, so much. yes, that's right. So as long as, yeah, there's like this whole heavenly economy where <laughs> as long as enough people pray, then heaven will just have to intervene. Why didn't we just get 50 people together to pray for Mr. Potter and then three ghosts would have came and the whole story could have been cut off at the knees. We wouldn't even had to put up with it. The whole thing's silly. It's patronizing. It's making use of holy realities. I don't know. I mean, uh, you got the passages in Jude and elsewhere where it says, don't defile, don't talk about what angelic, are the majesties. Ange- angelic majesties. It says don't blaspheme them. Don't blaspheme an angelic majesty. Well, isn't um, it sort of blaspheming an angelic majesty to depict him as a bumbling guy who died in his nightgown 50 years ago? And is yeah. Here we it's have kind of a fantasy world with its own terms. Yeah. To some yeah. Extent. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just like if you had a fantasy world where it was okay to murder people, then that'd be <laughs> not, great. Good not, fantasy not world. Quite the same. Yeah. So everybody in this movie responds to Clarence the way that we see them responding to angels in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. They're really afraid and get down on their knees and he's he's a, he's, a, he's, he's, he's he's a fake version of an angel. There's no power of God. There's no dignity of God. There's no Certainly no wrath of God. It's just all kind of nice Americana. Sure, there's some wrath. The storm kicked up when Clarence... (laughs) Yeah. You didn't have to make all that fuss about it. Well, I feel like... Okay, so end of argument. I feel like I'm being Mr. Potter here a little bit and bringing more scrutiny to the movie than most people would really like to be brought to the movie. I don't know whether that's quite a fair argument against what I'm saying, though, because these kinds of things, precious moments kinds of things, they do corrupt people's understandings of Mm -hmm. very real, very scary, very holy, heavenly realities. And so what do we do with that when we approach a movie like this? There are generations of people who have thought more wrongly about God and about heavenly realities because of It's Wonderful Life. I was one of them Mm -hmm. as a kid. And I was hmm. part of my desire to watch the movie was to peer beyond the veil into some idiotic Hollywood depiction of heavenly realities. Um, you know what I grew up with was Angels in the Outfield, and boy, was it nice to think that Christopher Lloyd and his angels would have gotten manipulated. Ma- my the... parents love each other again, or tried to <laughs> by changing uh. some baseball games. You know, I mean, it was actually really appealing. I loved that movie as a kid. Yeah, I remember that movie too. <laughs> um, 
you have to be able to approach this movie on the level of a fable and a fairy tale. And if you can't, then you can't. I don't, I really think that's what it comes down to. If you don't take it on the terms of it being a fable, then it's blasphemous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should just say that it's blasphemous and leave it at that. But what we have, like we have in the story of, uh, we could we could argue the same thing about A Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. that the ghosts and everything is not real and the bad representation of supernatural realities. And so we should never watch or read A Christmas Carol. Well, if people want a really extended discussion from Warhorn Media about this, they can listen to our Harry Potter episodes in, over on the Bookening podcast, uh, episodes two and three, I think we argued first against Harry Potter as something that Christians should read and then for it. You know, the idea is that there, that the biblical reality is that sorcery is evil. And yet here we have a fantasy world where sorcery is portrayed as neutral. How do you live with that tension? Do you choose to live with that tension? But can you approach something like this as just a bit of myth making that alludes to a larger point without actually expressing yeah. real reality? <clears throat> yeah, it's yeah, it's a pretty big question because if you if you watched and enjoyed a movie where murder was not a sin, that would just be evil, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we're all pretty much okay with watching a movie where sorcery is not a sin. Yep. Why? Is or that are we? Or are we? That's the question. I we think have... that it's right to feel some discomfort about it at the very least. Oh, yeah. It is hard to do this movie. There are people in our church that think it's evil to watch it and think it's an evil movie. Mm. Huh? Yes, I'm sorry. I was just agreeing with you. Just like there are people in our church that think Harry Potter's evil. And there are people in our church, actually, that think Lord of the Rings is evil, for that right. matter. Or Narnia. Um, I myself did not... Fairy tales, fairy tales and fables externalize providence in mythic creatures all the time. Fairy godmothers and... Angels in this case. In this case, angels. And it's close enough to divine realities that you should ask the question and think it twice before showing it to your kids. And talk if you show it to your kids, talk to your kids about it, that this is a fairy tale and this has nothing to do with reality, with God, with the Bible with angels as they are in real life. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that you can't watch the fairy tale or the fable and take the lesson from the fable and the fairy tale. Well, I think like, for example, with Lord of the Rings, I think we would argue that Gandalf is not a representation of a sorcerer like the Old Testament, um, like the Levitical law is talking about. Gandalf nope. is a symbol a storytelling device for for providence as you said for it for an actual angel even he's that kind of character and so it's unfortunate that he has the same name as something that we know to be wicked but actually most adult people and even kid people are able to sort those two things out in their brains and mm-hmm. we know that fairy tales are fairy tales and i don't know i think most people that watch it's a wonderful life are smart enough to realize maybe that is the best argument against it is that a lot of just normal kind of lamestream people that watch it might i guess think it is well there's a reason as we mentioned the uh film blanc stuff Mm. that this kind of trope shows up in hallmark movies and in 
TV shows from the 90s like Touched by an, Touched Angel. By an Angel. And there's a mm-hmm. certain brand of Christian that's really cheesy and shallow. Really who wants is to re- buy into this exact wants to kind buy of into, thing. That's how actually heavenly realities work and God is just in the business of making them feel better. I was at, over Thanksgiving, I was at a worship service where somebody told a story about a car accident and they got out of, and the the high point of the story was they got out of the car and somebody and she was distraught and somebody came up and said, you look like you need a hug and gave them a hug. And then she turned around and the person was just gone. Mm-hmm. Maybe that person was a guardian angel. People think this way about this sort of thing. And these types of movies do play into that kind of thinking. Yeah. And it's a, it is a part, this sort of American mythos. Sorry, I can't do that right now. This Siri American mythos. Apparently. Um, this sort of American myth-making, as you said earlier, this sort of like, I don't know. Well, the fact is, people... It, 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 there has developed from things like It's a Wonderful Life, this whole weird, bizarre culture of guardian angels, this whole mythos of guardian angels that people actually do believe in. Yeah, but just the same way as in Harry Potter, we said the wiz- a wizard is a useful trope, not to talk about sorcery, but to talk about, actually, I think, divine providence. Angels and devils are useful tropes in storytelling and always have been, you know, the devil as a character. I don't, you know, you don't want to mess with the real devil, but the devil as a trickster character that comes into a mythological story and shakes things up and tries to tempt people. It's like, that's not representing the real devil. It's a symbol for the people in our lives and the situations in our lives where we're tempted. It's a symbol for the things that yeah. Um and this movie isn't actually about divine realities. It's about the fact really that a ordinary man had a crisis and then, you know, basically yeah. he thought about all the things that he had to be thankful for and somebody came along, you know, a brother figure, a father figure, an intervening figure just like we all have in our lives whether they be pastors, fathers or friends or whatever. Um and helped him through it. And that's all Clarence really represents in the movie. And yeah, it's got a little supernatural sheen, just kind of almost de- as a decorative touch well, to that's make it the, fun. But but the fact is that we that the that the question of whether or not fantasy is okay, even the supernatural elements, really, I don't see as we're talking. I realize I don't see how to disentangle that from the question of whether fiction, period, is okay. Yes, because you're because you're creating you're creating a place with its own rules when you tell a parable. You have you have weird stuff in the Old Testament, like the parable of the uh, the thorns, how the thorn bush becomes the bramble, becomes king over the trees, maybe a lesser known one. But you've got like talking trees and brambles. Well, that doesn't happen in the real world. So I don't know. Sorry, I'm kind of yeah. It's kind off of a, what's was it? What's the reducto ad absurdum? I suppose is kind of kind of the argument there. Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not super clear on how to draw the lines. I don't know either. But basically, what you're saying is if you don't think that we can talk about things using metaphor. If you don't think that Clarence yeah. can be a metaphor, then yeah. you're really setting yourself against an awful lot of what the scripture actually does in the Psalms. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. Is God literally a shepherd? Does he is he, is he a person that cares for sheep? Good storytellers, good communicators have just always used metaphor, and you have to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, and in, and in fact, any time in fiction that you invoke even the biblical God. And talk about his work in your characters' lives. If you don't think that we can that we can do that um, in, in order to represent God's work in a useful way, then 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 what you'd have to say is that 
you're being blasphemous because these aren't real people and you can't make God do what you want him to do in your story. So that's blasphemy. So in other words, fiction does become impossible. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. But a a good Presbyterian or Baptist who might be listening to the show might look at you and say, okay, well, I'm willing to to go so far with you, but we're hitting up against the second commandment here. Mm -hmm. You shall not make a graven image Mm -hmm. of things in heaven. Yeah. And here you're depicting an angel. Well, You're calling him an angel. Well, we, we, we just say that angels have appeared physically, that you don't see Clarence in glory. Mm-hmm. You just see him, <laughs> you just see him appear as a dude. There's... And that was where, that's where I want to say, don't be so black and white. Clarence mm-hmm. is not symbolizing or meant to represent what a real angel's like. He's just not. He's meant to be a doddering relative that intervenes for your good. That's basically what Clarence's function is. And some comic relief. Is. Yeah. yeah. And you know what the story is a pretty if, dark so- story. If if Clarence is a shining, you know, Miltonian angelic majesty figure, the story doesn't work. Yep. So sure, should could it would it have been nice if they'd called him a sprite so it would be less confusing for, for silly people? Sure, maybe it would. But then it wouldn't have felt as warm yeah. or sweet. But Mm-mm. could it have been ghosts? Well then it would have felt too much like a Christmas carol. Right. Mm-hmm. Could it have been an elf from the North Pole? Yeah, today if they did the movie it probably would have been. But, you know, it's an angel and for me that's not a deal breaker. Yeah. Yeah. If that's not satisfying to someone then all I can really tell them is they're going to have to do their own work on it and come to their own conclusion and whatever and that's it is. Okay. I respect it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you listener tell me that you can't watch this and, because you think it violates the second commandment, I respect that. Yeah, I don't agree, but I respect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. Enough said on that subject. I think so. All right. Potterville. <laughs> oh, we got more of these. Oh, yeah, two more. Potterville, Pottersville Pot- yeah. versus Bedford Falls. Ben, you're going to argue that Pottersville is the good, sustainable town and that life actually would have been better if George had never existed because Pottersville is an awesome place to live. And Jake, you are in this very serious and awesome argument. You're going to argue for Bedford Falls. Okay. So it looks like Ben is slated to go first. Bring it with your crony capitalism, Ben. All right. Well, the simple fact is that Pottersville looks like it's thriving and it has an economic future and stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My libertarian friend. <laughs> My libertarian I'm afraid friend. The markets will be quite operational when your friends arrive. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but um, well... Yep, it has an economic future. Bedford Falls is like kind of a manufacturing town, but manufacturing in upstate New York is not doing well today. <laughs> Ergo. <laughs> uh, maybe we Should have gotten in that... on the ground floor with Sam Wainwright. That's right, that's right. Maybe, yeah, yep, yep. Plastics, the future, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, oh, that's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> I'll help out a little bit. The movie really does idealize this small little town, and it really does knock the nasty big city. But that's just Capra's SJ, you know, proto SJW kind of liberal nonsense. There's nothing particularly idyllic about real small towns. In fact, they're usually hotbeds of just gossip and incest and everything else. If you've ever actually lived in a small town or been around one, they're not that nice. Big cities can have lots of cool things about them and like industry can be nice lots of cool things like what exactly 
<laughs> like whores. <laughs> is that what you want me to say? Whores and strippers and casinos. like a decadent small town. It's, yeah, that's what it is. It's a it's really not a bit, decadent it's not a city. It's so. a. It, it's still a small town. It's just morally bankrupt. Nobody cares about it in each other. Everybody's angry and mean spirited and given over to their lusts. And I'm saying that if you actually brought a little bit of that kind of of, of the entertainment industry, shall we say, to a town like Bedford, Bedford Falls, it might not necessarily corrupt it in the way that the movie completely stacks the deck. But the movie does stack the deck and give me Bedford Falls over. Oh sure, give yeah over Pottersville any day. <laughs> Bedford Falls is a quaint, sweet little town where people care about each other and do right by each other. And it's got its villains and it's got its problems. But, you know, people are trying. And in Pottersville, eh, you know, cynical, what's to live for? Might as well go to the strip joint. And even, you know, everybody's just that much meaner, colder. Well, you make a fair point, Jake. But I'm going to go ahead and award the point to Pottersville. (laughs) <laughs> Congratulations, Ben. Yes. My. Man, well, that argument was, of mine was hard to <laughs> hard to get around, that's for sure. Okay, this is our last movie fight. Did George make right decisions? I don't I, know what that what? means. Well, that's, oh. that's, 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 yeah. I get what that means. I actually have. You mean like should George have actually have made the sacrifices that he made? Um, I, I already addressed all of that and what I said about George. Like anything I would have wanted to say here, I said then. Which is, Which George is, did it all out of it with bitter, the, with while bitterness, harboring bitterness. Therefore, and, no, he did not. Yeah, I'm not sure I completely buy that. Right. I well, I'm know. not sure I do either, but it was. That was what you wanted to argue that, or try to w- tease out? That would have been the argument, yeah. Well, if anyone's ever read a book about boundaries or codependency or anything like that then <laughs> they know that some, when we feel like we owe the entire community a dare i say christ-like self-sacrifice on our parts then it's not always healthy and very true yep. maybe george should have if you know if he wasn't able to do it without bitterness if it wasn't what he actually wanted maybe he should have uh, shook the dust off and uh, tried to go the do dust something of this else. crummy town off his feet. Crummy he didn't necessarily town, yeah. owe those people anything, did he? That's the argument. That's the best argument, at least that's I right. think. That is, yeah, that's the best argument. Well, he owed his brother something. He did owe his brother something, and he, you know, his dad had a heart attack, and there was a need, and there was an opportunity, and he made a plan, and that plan was still do right by the family business and to send his brother off to college and his place and to keep things going and they were going to swap places and yeah, i mean the movie stacks the deck pretty well and you you always feel good about the decisions he makes but i wonder jake if i'm if, I'm, if i can keep pursuing this argument i wonder if you were george's pastor whether you would have always told him you know whether you might not have said george take a honeymoon for crying out loud this isn't your fight not your problem um whether you might not say or, or well, even... the problem, part of the problem with even that whole scenario is the building and loan goes under. Right. Yep. He loses his livelihood and his ability to provide for his wife and family if he doesn't make the decision he makes in that moment. So even if he was, if he was motivated by just sort of like keeping people from panicking, even if he wasn't motivated by that, if he was motivated purely for the interests of his new bride and his family... Mm-hmm. he might have had to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think did. about that. That's um, a very good point. That's why he says, you know, Potter's not selling, Potter's buying, mm-hmm. right? He's buying stock. He's he's buying up your business. He's buying up 
he's putting the building this is an uh, this is a crisis and he's taking advantage of the crisis and everybody's panicking he's the only one that's not mm-hmm. and he's going to put the building and loan out of business and that's the game and George is smart enough to see it and George knows if he doesn't act his whole livelihood is gone so i don't know i mean it's you a- can say that George shouldn't have stayed behind and he should have gone off to college like he had planned to it wasn't his problem but you had people looking at him and he was in a position to do something and to that's just the, these are the kinds of decisions that people have to make for themselves and that's the decision that George made for himself and as a George's pastor I'm actually probably not going to counsel him too hard one way or another I'm just going to say George mm-hmm. this is the cost here and this is the cost there mm-hmm. and this is the benefit here and this is the benefit there and you need to examine your heart and your motives and you need to do what you think is best mm-hmm. and is going to honor God and I'm going to hopefully try not to be too heavy-handed about about that. Well, and also your way forward as pastor might be a lot clearer in real life because the deck wouldn't because wouldn't you be wouldn't so be living stacked. in a fable right. where everything was so stacked that right. you know the town is going to go under if George doesn't. <laughs> if George doesn't. The whole town is going to become Potter's Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is true that there are a lot of people out there with martyr complexes that fancy themselves to be George Bailey, and they should probably just shut up and stop and just That's love right. their wife and kids and work hard and not That's be That's right. The world doesn't depend on you. And take the advantages that God blesses them with and not think that they have to deny themselves those for some weird right. spiritual... Right. Um, That's right. Absolutely. And probably a lot... Probably... A lot of our listeners have or do or do or have felt that way. Mm-hmm. And it's just not true. Right. The movie stacks the deck. You're not George Bailey. Right. Um, yeah. Not every choice is a Sophie's choice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for someone who wants to feel like they have the glory of being a martyr, for someone who really loves themselves, they want every choice to be a Sophie's choice so that right. they can feel that yeah. glory, that passion. Of yeah. Just Yeah. When all you've got is feeling sorry for yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's. I think that that is the strength of the movie. Again, is it's it is a fable, and George Bailey does what he does, kind of like instinctively mm-hmm. to some extent. Yeah, and and he it's, does. it's it's just a mirror for you to process. Like, if I did have a a sacrificial choice, like would I? Would I just jump in there and yeah. jump up on the thing and say, "Hey, it's George's"? Yeah, video. yeah, yeah. Would would I would I would I care about people that way? And you know, or am I selfish? Ma- it was Mary. It was Mary who figured it out. That's right. Yep. It was Mary who said, we've got the money. That's right. Mm-hmm. And George jumped on it. Yep. But they did it together as a team. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That is yeah. a good, that is, I think you really, maybe for the first time in my life, Ben, you put your finger on what I do really like about George Bailey is his instinct is just, even though on, like in his thinking brain, mm-hmm. he's just this kind of bitter guy, a serpent guy that doesn't yeah. like his life, doesn't really like anyone. Except for Mary, some of the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a little harsh, but it's a little sure. harsh. But uh, it, but then beyond that, and his whatever you want to call it, his, his animal brain, his subconscious—I don't know what the word for it—is. But he's right. just, he just does the right thing. He he's just grabs just, hold. And I know people like he that. jumps in the water. And I love people like that. You know, he does the right thing in that moment, and then he go, and then he gets to the end of the day, and then he remembers that he's got a wife. <laughs> yeah. And he goes home and his friends are sweet and his mm-hmm. wife is sweet. And that's a really sweet moment. That's the sweetest, maybe the sweetest moment of the film. Mm-hmm. That's very sweet. Anything, that's, that ends our movie fights. Does anybody want to say anything else about this movie? Uh, I think we've said a lot. 
Mm-hmm. It's very classical, and it's the way it's filmed and all that kind of stuff. There's not a lot to say, like it's very nice. Our Citizen Kane episode. There's not a lot of. It's just yeah. all in the story itself. It's Capra, not, Capra mostly gets out of the way. Like he doesn't. He doesn't make really missteps. Or not many of them as a director. He mm-hmm. just. This will serve the purpose. It is a wonderful evocation of small town life, whether it's true or false, whether it's completely a lie made by Hollywood. I don't really care. It's. It's really sweet. The town, actually, Bedford Falls. Like, who doesn't want to live there? There's a reason why there's a Bedford Falls snow village that mm-hmm. you can buy. Well, on the whole, the- recreate in your living room or dining room, or whatever. <laughs> and I just, I love the scene of, you know, I love the old man that, uh, who is it that yell, you know, just kiss her for crying out loud. The youth yeah. is wasted <laughs> on the young. That um, <laughs> ah, youth is wasted on the young. Yeah, just that community. Bert and Ernie, the you know. Yeah. Am I talking too much? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice to, you know, I always like it in the Spider-Man movies when New York decides to rally behind Spider. He's one of us, you know. <laughs> every, every third Spider-Man movie or so. Has <laughs> a be, like that. They'll have something like that. And I always really like it. Like, it's just, it's always sweet to see community portrayed in a movie. And it doesn't really happen very often. Movies are usually about heroes like Indiana Jones or James Bond. And insofar as those guys have to stand alone. Right. They're insofar as they're bound by a community. It's a stupid bureaucracy that's keeping them from being the awesome people that they should be. But I love movies about communities. It's always really sweet. It reminds me of what I love about the church, of what I love about my church and the good communities I've been a part of. And this movie really gets that right Mm -hmm. Um, in a really sweet eh, bit of a fable way. But. It's good. Yeah. And I really like that scene where the swimming pool opens up in the gym and they all fall into it. (laughs) It's really funny. And did you further know that George Bailey is standing on the crack? Mm. (laughs) They give each other that, you know, cheesy little (laughs) wink and nod. (laughs) Maybe shake hands or something like that. (laughs) They don't. I, I suppose Marvel comes the closest these days, but there's so few movies that are actually true family films. Like there's kids movies, uh, Pixar too. I suppose there are they are out there. But a movie like this that just has a little bit of everything. It has some romance. It's got some drama. It's got some pretty goofy comedy. It's got it's got comedy. It's got romance that sails over a kid's head. It's got yeah. And it's really sophisticated. Like the adult parts are adult, but there's also. Well, I really, I really wonder. I hadn't thought about it before I gave my baggage, but I really wonder if they didn't say, sit down and say, okay, let's, we're telling two stories here and we're telling a story for adults and a story for kids. Mm -hmm. And the story for adults is how George Bailey gets redeemed. Right. And the story for kids is how Clarence, the angel gets his wings. Yeah, I think they probably did. And I think they probably did. And attaboy Clarence is so nice. Good way. Look, daddy. Huh. Well, should we tell our listeners to go and see if they can somehow dig up, actually, they'd have to dig this up out of the archives at the Paley Center for Media in Beverly Hills, California, but maybe they should go and see It Happened One Christmas, which is... Orson Welles? No, no, no. It is a gender-swapped straight-to-television remake of It's a Wonderful Life about Mary Bailey Hatch. And oh. Clara Oddbody, who comes to rescue her. <laughs> Seriously, it's it's real. It came out in 1977, and uh, it has not even been released on DVD so I far. I don't know. <laughs> it looks great. What's it? What's it called again? It happened one Christmas. Well, uh, Ben, would you recommend that our viewers watch It Happened One Christmas? Absolutely not, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> 
Jake, should people watch It Happened One Christmas? You could probably I find it right. on YouTube. Orson Welles. Huh? What are you talking about, Orson Welles? Uh, he started it. Oh. Oh, in the radio adaptation? No. No. And It Happened One Christmas. I totally forgot he was in it. Okay. Well, it's not his movie anyway. That's all I'm. No, but he's the person that I knew was in it. Oh, hey. No, it's on YouTube. You Guess what? You guys don't have to he go plays, to the Paley Institute in California. He plays Mr. Potter. You can watch it on YouTube. Oh, man. There he is, Mr. Potter. Yep, probably a great Christmas classic waiting to be discovered by you and your family. Probably. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for that, Ben. <laughs> you're yeah. sure welcome. <laughs> Always added value. It's like your middle name. That's what you get. Benjamin added value, Solzer. Yeah. Hey, I guess people should watch It's a Wonderful Life, unless they have religious convictions or something that make them not. But Yep. And Merry Christmas to our listeners. You can open your presents now. You can drink your mimosa. You can let the kids come down and tell them to stop being quiet. Yeah. We will be off for the next two weeks, but we'll be coming roaring out of the gate in early January with some good stuff for you. Merry Christmas, Jake. Merry Christmas, Nathan. Merry Christmas, Ben. Merry Christmas, Nathan. And until next time, Merry Merry Christmas, Christmas, listeners. Merry Christmas, you wonderful building and loan.